Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Tonight on The Readout... I frankly am skeptical of this claim that I declassified everything, you know. If in fact he sort of stood over uh, scores of boxes not really knowing what was in them and said I hereby declassify everything in here, that would be such an abuse uh, and, uh, that, uh, and show such recklessness that it's almost worse than taking the documents. Career Trump enabler Bill Barr is saying Trump probably committed a serious crime. Looks like Donald is in big trouble. And today we learned much more about the many classified documents Trump stole and stashed at Mar-a-Lago. Plus, President Biden's searing and completely accurate warning about the threat posed by Trump and his violent election-denying followers. And day five of a national disgrace, the state capital where the water isn't safe to drink and citizens are being advised to keep their mouths closed when taking a shower. The mayor of Jackson, Mississippi joins me tonight. We begin tonight with a newly unsealed inventory that provides the most detail to date of exactly what was seized during the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago last month. We already knew from the DOJ's filing earlier this week that the FBI seized more than 100 classified documents. But now we not only have a breakdown of those documents and where they were found, but what else was among them? Those classified documents included 18 marked top secret, 54 marked secret, and 31 marked confidential. Even more alarming is the fact that 27 of those classified documents were found in Donald Trump's personal office, including seven marked as top secret. According to the inventory list, some of the classified documents were found strewn around in boxes alongside newspaper clippings, articles of clothing, and books. Now, don't forget, this comes after one of Trump's lawyers told the FBI in June that all the records that had come from the White House were stored in one location, and that there were no other records stored in any private office space. And a Trump custodian of records signed a statement that they had done a diligent search and found no further classified documents to hand over. You have to wonder how that person could have missed more than 100 classified documents in 15 different boxes and containers being kept in a storage room and in Trump's personal office. It was those very same boxes in the storage room that the DOJ noted during its June visit, quote, the former president's counsel explicitly prohibited government personnel from opening or looking inside, giving no opportunity for the government to confirm that no documents with classification markings remained. What's also troubling is that the list shows that the FBI seized 48 empty folders, empty, marked classified, and 42 empty folders marked return to staff secretary slash military aid. Something tells me that Trump would not have taken empty folders down to Mar-a-Lago. So what happened to all those documents? This all comes as federal judge Eileen Cannon is still considering 
whether to grant Trump's request for a special master to review what was seized during the FBI search for any documents that might be considered privileged. Joining me now is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and professor at the University of Michigan Law School, and Mark Polymeropoulos, MSNBC national security analyst and a former CIA intelligence officer. And uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Polymeropoulos. I have to go with you, to you first because the word that stood out to me in this um, new, you know, detailed list of what was found is empty. Because it's bad enough that Donald Trump took folders away from the government that said return, you know, to their classified settings. The fact that they were empty, does that alarm you as much as much as it alarms me? Well, Joy, you know, the story certainly gets more interesting. And, and you know, the, the idea that there were, you know, empty, these empty, uh, empty files or empty, empty uh, uh, envelope, uh, envelopes, you know, there, you know, leads one to believe uh, that there is much more to be found. And, you know, you have to ask the question, you know, what was in there? I think that you know, we don't want to get too nervous right now in, in the sense of because we just don't know what was in those documents. You know, I think you have to take a look at the cover sheet. Were there file numbers on there? Can you go back and see exactly what was in there? You know, was it was it, you know, information from our sources? Was it information from signals intelligence or perhaps even satellites? Um, but the notion of, of, you know, missing documents, that's really in, in, in the counterintelligence, counterintelligence arena. That's the worst nightmare because you, you then start assuming um, that things are compromised rather than really trying to track down if it, you know, if there was a spy in our midst or or if we know exactly how something was mishandled. This really opens things up to, to a lot of uncertainties here. And we just we have to let the investigation continue. And as somebody who has dealt with our spies and dealt with the, you know, the, the risky business of even collecting this information, what does it say to you that Donald Trump would have this stuff just thrown around, mixed in with clothing and magazines as if it was in a junk drawer? Well, look, it's it's stunning malpractice, um, and it's something that I think really kind of gets to the gut of a lot of us who really, you know, upheld the rules for many years. Whether you're getting polygraphed occasionally, whether you're locking your safe at night, and and ultimately, for me, I was a CIA operations officer, so my job was to spot assess, develop, uh, recruit, and then handle an agent. And what is an agent? An agent is someone we recruit. It's a Russian foreign ministry official. It's a Chinese military officer. It's an Iranian engineer, and they. They put their lives in our hands. And there's a sacred bond between a CIA case officer and the agent. And what is that bond? It's we're going to keep your identity secret. So the notion that, you know, potentially uh, uh, the president of the United States and then the former president, you know, allowed this information to kind of go out into the ether and potentially be compromised. That's really hard for a lot of us to take. And it is going to make it potentially more difficult down the line to recruit uh, recruit agents. And, you know, that's the lifeblood of our, my old organization. I would think so. And Barbie, let's talk about these lawyers for just a second. We know that now the, the lawyers who work for us, not, not the lawyers who work for Trump, um, have been interviewed. Top White House lawyers, uh, Pat Philbin and uh, Pat Cipollone, both of them uh, were two. They were obviously working for us. They were White House counsels. They were, um, d- you know, they, the FBI has talked to them or the grand jury, I should say, has talked to them. Um, the concern here, I think, is not them, because they seem to be fairly straight shooters, even when it comes to the January 6th stuff. But Trump's personal lawyers have over and over again represented that they personally saw to it that everything was turned over, that there was nothing left there. And yet the stuff was so easy to find. It was just in his office. How is it possible that none of the, the custodian of records, his personal attorneys, or even the White House counsel and deputy White House counsel could not have known that Donald Trump had all of this stuff? 
Yeah, I think that probably explains the inclusion in the search warrant affidavit of the statute that makes it a crime to conceal documents as a form of obstruction of justice. To say uh, and attest in a, in a signed document, here's the rest of it in June to return an envelope and then for, for the FBI to come back two months later and find 30 more boxes, we don't know what the basis of their knowledge was, that there were additional documents there, but clearly they knew things uh, that either were unknown to these lawyers when they signed it or uh, that they deliberately uh, failed to disclose. And I agree with you. I think one of the facts that was really important in um, the affidavit that was unsealed in part last Friday was the part that said, um, you know, they, they represented that this was due diligence that they went through and they reviewed all these things. And in just a couple of hours, the FBI agents who showed up were able to find these 30 boxes of documents. And so I think these lawyers have some potential criminal liability. There is uh, some privilege issue to work through here, both attorney client and Fifth Amendment privilege if they want to question these two people. But I also think it's re- very important to find out whether uh, it was Donald Trump who made these representations to them when they attested that they had all of the documents back. I want to stay with you for just a second, Barr, because, you know, William Barr is no great creature of virtue. Um, He lied to the American people about the Mueller report. He enabled Donald Trump in every way possible and acted as if he was Donald Trump's personal lawyer and not the lawyer for the United States, which was his real job. But even he said that every single aspect of this story is bad. If Donald Trump waved a magic wand over a big box of documents and said, I hereby declassify it all, he's like, that's even worse because you're supposed to notify each agency, well, hey, I'm declassifying this, this, and this because of those spies that Mr. Polymeropoulos used to run. You need to tell people that, hey, I'm declassifying stuff and making it not secret. He said it's it, that just having the documents at all is a crime. Even William Barr, whose whole purpose in government was to defend Donald Trump, has said bad. And he said it on Fox At this point, is there any defense whatsoever? That's two questions for you. Is there any defense whatsoever for having these documents? And number two, is the fact that some of the folders were empty in and of itself evidence of concealment? So first, is there any defense? None that is apparent. Now, there may be things behind those redaction bars that provide some defense or maybe that some piece of the facts that we don't know. But this declassification defense is an absolute loser. Number one, it's imaginary. It could not have happened. It's physically impossible. But number two, it doesn't matter. It's legally irrelevant to the charges listed on the search warrant affidavit that don't require that the documents be classified. Uh, One of them is just that they're government records. Another is that they relate to the national defense. And the third is that there was obstruction of justice here. And yes, I do think the fact that there are empty folders here does tend to make it more likely that charges will be filed. Back when Jim Comey explained why it was his recommendation that Hillary Clinton not be charged for uh, having an unsecured private email server that did receive some classified emails, one of the uh, factors that he looked at there was whether there was any, any willful disregard for the law or whether the documents had been stored in such a way as to demonstrate a carelessness uh, for who might uh, get a hold of the documents. And there was no evidence of that because she only shared it with other agency personnel. Here, the fact that there are empty folders uh, that really suggests that they were stored uh, in a very uh, haphazard fashion. And maybe they've even been, uh, you know, given away, sold. Who knows what's happened to them? It'll be important to get to the bottom of it. But even if we never find out where they went, the fact that they're empty does suggest a blatant disregard for the proper way of handling classified documents. And Mr. Palmarvis, I would just like to get your own personal sort of feeling as, as somebody who was in the tradecraft, and this, this was your the thing that you, you, you did with as a career, to hear a politician like Elise Stefanik, who is the number three in the House Republican caucus, to equate this to 
Russia hoax to brush off and blow off the idea that Donald Trump could have endangered sources and methods that could have allowed one of our enemies to find, to track down, to harm people who were working for our benefit, for our national security. I just wonder for you, just as a, as a, as a, as a human being, how do, how do you feel when you hear somebody say that purely for political reasons? So, so Joy, I mean, I, I think it's, it's repulsive. I mean, it goes against the kind of the core ethos of, of, you know, what we swore to do, obviously upholding the Constitution, but in the intelligence business, which is uh, you know, to to protect the United States intelligence, you know, the CIA, we always consider ourselves the, the nation's first line of defense. And so when you when you downplay incidents like this, um, I think it's an insult to the, the men and women who, by the way, at the CIA and, and the intelligence community are apolitical. I mean, you know, the, my old colleagues just put their, you know, their nose to the ground every day and they're doing their job in protecting America. But when it when when, when you hear statements like that, um, again, it's it's really it's really a gut punch because it goes to the basic foundations of 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 what we were doing at CIA. And and, and look, the, the, I have to say one thing: when when you hear you know the some of the defenses from the from the Trump crowd that it's only documents. I mean, I go back to you know go back to the time of of the atomic the the you know the race of the atomic bomb. The Soviet Union got an atomic bomb because they stole documents. They had spies in the United States, penetrations of the U.S. government. So the idea it's just documents just doesn't doesn't, uh, uh, you know, hold any uh, any water. And and so, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I, and I've called for this many times before, you know, we have to let this the DNI damage assessment go forward, because that's how we're really going to find out the, the degree in which, um, you know, either our agents, uh, you know, the heroes that I call who, who work for us overseas, or, you know, perhaps collection systems like satellites or, or signals intercept systems, a degree of compromise. And so let's let the DNI do their job. Um, and of course, as the, as the DOJ investigation goes on. And, and Barbara, I'll, I'll give you the last word here. Um, how I think for regular people who think about, you know, shoplifters end up in jail right? because they have candy in their pockets. Um, and I think people are shocked at what Donald Trump has been able to get away with in his life. Is there any way that Donald Trump gets away with this? Because this seems like the worst possible thing, worse than all the other awful things that he did. And this isn't alleged to have done. He admits he did it. He complained that the agents who um, went in and took those documents made them look messy on the floor, which is a, an admission that he took the documents, that he had the documents for 18 months. How is there any way this man gets away without being indicted for this? Well, you know, again, there, there are certain facts that we don't know that are behind those redaction bars. But based on the facts that we do know, there's mishandling of classified information, national defense information, and some concealment of that. And so there's absolutely what appears from the facts we know, a violation of the law. Prosecutors, though, then do engage in discretion, and they try to decide whether uh, prosecution would serve no substantial federal interest. If not, then they should decline prosecution. And in these cases, what prosecutors usually look for are aggravating factors. Uh, you know, if somebody accidentally brings home one classified piece of paper in their briefcase, there are serious consequences for that. They may be fired. They may be disciplined. They may have their clearance pulled. But typically, they're not going to be charged with a crime for that, even though they technically could. But here with these aggravating factors, I think it's going to be impossible to ignore. David Petraeus was prosecuted. 
for having classified documents he wasn't allowed to have. David Petraeus was somebody who served this country, um, uh, put his body on the line for the United States, and he got prosecuted. If, he, if Trump doesn't, there's something very deeply wrong with our justice system. Barbara McQuaid, that's, that's on me, not on my wonderful guest, Barbara McQuaid, Mark Polymeropoulos. Thank you both. Up next on The Readout, as President Biden warns of the dangers of MAGA Republicans, I was reminded of another time in the not-so-distant past when a major faction within the Democratic Party had to be quarantined for the good of the country. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Now, I want to be very clear, very clear up front. <clears throat> not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. There are far more Americans, far more Americans, from every, from every background and belief, who reject the extreme MAGA ideology than those that accept it. President Joe Biden last night did not hold back, slamming Donald Trump and MAGA Republicans for their attempts to undermine democracy. The key they don't word there being what every patriotic American knows call out the entire Republican Party in an attempt to appeal to the faction that is still normal, whatever size of a faction that might be. The ones who may be opposed to forced birth and overthrowing elections, or maybe just realize that so many within the party today have gone too far. It is reminiscent of something that we've seen before in our country's history. In 1948, after President Harry Truman ordered the integration of the U.S. military and began to address civil rights on the federal level, Many Southern white Democrats were outraged, leading them to organize a breakaway faction known as the Dixiecrats. The Dixiecrats were focused on keeping Jim Crow laws in place. Their campaign slogan was segregation forever. And in the presidential election that year, they nominated South Carolina Governor Strom Thurmond as their candidate. He lost, but carried four states and 39 electoral votes. Those segregationist ideologies caused the Dixiecrats to quickly fail, so much so that in 2002, Republican Senate, Major Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott of Mississippi was forced to apologize after saying this at Thurman's 100th birthday toast. I want to say this about my state. When Strom Thurmond ran for president, we voted for him. We're proud of it. And if the rest of the country had followed our lead, we wouldn't have had all these problems over all these years either. Mm -hmm. In the same way that the Dixiecrats left the Democratic Party back then, President Biden last night is essentially trying to separate the MAGA cult out of the Republican Party. He's saying, go, do your own thing, be your own little faction. 
while Biden speaks to everyone else, Democrats, independents, and normal Republicans. Joining me now is Charles Blow, New York Times columnist, and David Korn, Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones and author of An American Psychosis, the historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. So that means I got to start with you, David, because I, I guess the big question, and, I, and I, Biden is always Bidening. And one of the things about Bidening is he's the everybody's included guy, right? And, and right. his whole thing is he still wants to address the whole country. So it does feel like he was doing Operation Quarantine. MAGA Republicans are like these people, the Steve Bannons, Roger Stones, Michael Flynn's, Giuliani, you know, the Paul Manafort's, the, the Trumps, the, those kinds of people. The, you know, the, now I guess Lee Stefanik, those people are in one camp and there's some faction of normal Republicans that are elsewhere. How big are those two factions? Because it does feel like the MAGAs have kind of taken over. First off, I think what Joe Biden did last night was difficult and not easy for a president to do. He said there were millions of Americans, we don't have a number, who are a profound threat to American democracy because they don't abide by the rules of American democracy and want to see it overturned. That said, I think he was being very charitable to the Republicans by saying the MAGA Republicans are just, you know, a bunch, a, a wing of the Republican Party. If it's a wing, it's the dominant wing. It's the wing of, you know, it's the two wings of a dragon in some ways. I mean, there is not a single Republican leader who has really come out who we, and we, to, to, to basically counter Trump and his election denialism and talk about his, you know, his demagoguery and retain that leadership position. You see what's happened to Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, and you see Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy while bending the knee. So the party is completely controlled in the apparatus by the people who are MAGA Republicans. I know that Biden wants to try to make it seem that the MAGA Republicans are an aberration. But since you brought up my book, which comes out in 10 days, I'll say, tell you that part of the story of the book is that this has always been a strong part of the Republican Party, encouraging and exploiting extremism. Trump has done it to an extensive, extreme uh, degree, but it's always been there. And I think it's really hard these days to separate Dr. Jekyll from Mr. Hyde, of the Republican Party. It's really all Hyde. You know, and Charles, I, I have likened the... The Republicans part, the Republican Party, the way that they have emerged now to the Dixiecrats before. I call them, you know, Dixiecrat Republicans. It's a Southern based party. It's a party that is, uh, purports things like white replacement theory, whether they do the, the, you know, the hardcore version that Tucker does on Fox or they do the soft version of it. Anti-immigrant, very anti-black people being able to vote. You know, you just go down the list. It is sort of a Dixiecrat party. The question is, is it a faction or is it the party? Yeah, I think, you know, it's very hard to split that hair. And I think what Biden is doing is, is you know, being a politician when he tries to do that. You know, when you look at how many Republicans voted for Donald Trump in the last election, it was north of 90 percent. When you look at a recent PRRI poll, 70 plus percent of people still have a favorable Republicans still have a favorable view of Donald Trump and they want him to run again in 2024. Uh, about a third of people think that there was something corrupt about the election. Uh, of Republicans think that uh, about a quarter of them are QAnon believers. I don't know how you do this. I don't think it's actually genuine to say it. I think it is politically expedient. That is what he has to do. But I think that Democrats get 
kind of beat over the head and they kind of back away when they tell the truth. The truth, telling the truth becomes a political sin. Uh, Barack Obama told the truth when he talked about people clinging to their guns and their Bibles. Hillary Clinton told the truth when he said, she said that there were um, deplorable people in the Republican Party supporting Donald Trump and they were, he was exciting a lot of racism and misogyny and bigotry. Those are true things, but Democrats get beat over the head because Republicans say, oh, you can't say that about actual voters. You can only say that about people who are running for office. You're punching down. Actually, if you are supporting these people, defending these people, promoting these people, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Nate Silver's group found that like it was like 120 pe- people running for office on multiple levels who denied the election. Many of those people won. You know why they won? Because Republican voters voted for them. You do not get to be exempted from being called what you are when it's the truth. You know, and the thing is, the other question is, David, are there people inside the party? You know, when the John Birchers came up, there were factions mm-hmm. in the party that said, go away. Um, when the Dixiecrats were around at a certain point from Kennedy on, they said, you know what, we're not even going to play ball with you more. Go away. Go ahead and be in the other party if you want. And they sort of ran to the other side, the other party. There doesn't seem to be a faction other than Liz Cheney, who also agrees with all of Trump's policies. She voted with him 90 percent of the time, who are saying, get lost. You know, I mean, I get into this in the book. We can talk about it later. But the Bushes were not thrown out of the Republican Party for a long time. A lot of Republicans wanted to use that energy. Publicly, they wanted to distance themselves, but they wanted these people there. You don't, you know, we, we know, we know what Mitch McConnell thinks about Donald Trump. We know that Kevin McCarthy blamed Donald Trump for January 6th for those few nanoseconds after the riot. We know these things to be true. We know there are a lot of Republicans in town who would like to see him leave and get back to being just plain old Mitch McConnell type conservatives, right? But they can't do this. They don't challenge him. When they have the chance to, they, they, they bend the knee to him. And so I don't see an internal battle within the Republican Party. You don't, No one's going to yeah. challenge him for that from that crowd if it exists in a 2024 campaign it doesn't that fight doesn't exist right now and their version of moderate is yunkin who wants to ban uh but he's a book banner (laughs) and he's like no tony morrison in this in this state uh charles blow david corn thank you both very much still ahead jackson mississippi mayor chokwe lumumba joins me on the dire water crisis in his city and why the state has neglected this growing problem for years and years and years we'll be right back Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. NBC 
News is exclusively reporting that retired NFL star quarterback Brett Favre has been questioned by the FBI after a Mississippi state auditor found that he received more than $1 million from the state's welfare fund in 2017 and 2018 to deliver motivational speeches that he never even gave. The state also gave $5 million of that money to build a women's volleyball facility at the University of Southern Mississippi, where Fav's daughter played volleyball. Fav declined to talk to NBC News, but his attorney says he never understood that he was paid with money intended to help poor children and that he repaid the fees for the speeches he has not been charged with or accused of any crime. This is all part of a much larger fraud case, with a state auditor finding that the head of the welfare agency gave more than $70 million intended for impoverished children to wealthy individuals like Fav. That is money taken away from children living in the poorest state in the entire country. Nearly 20% of Mississippi's residents live in poverty, and the numbers even higher, 25% in the capital, Jackson where more than 100,000 people have not had safe drinking water for days after flooding disrupted the city's water system. People are fed up. They're running to bordering cities who have clean water to just bathe. I honestly don't even want to bathe my baby in Jackson's water. It's sad, um, and I can't even afford to move out of Jackson, so I have to stay here and deal with this. This has been an issue for me since I came down here to Tougaloo College in 1991. I was always told not to drink that water. It's a problem Jackson residents have faced on and off for years with aging infrastructure that Jackson's mayor says will cost a billion dollars to fix. The state's Republican governor, Tate Reeves, and other officials have repeatedly opposed efforts to fund water treatment upgrades. President Biden has said Reeves has got to act and sent the FEMA administrator to Jackson today to assess the situation. And joining me now is the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, Chokwe Antar Lumumba. And Mayor Lumumba, I, I think for a lot of people, just the idea, other than Flint, which we all know what happened there, they switched to a dirty source of water and essentially poisoned the city of Flint uh, back in 2014. What is going on in Jackson? Why is the water unsafe to drink? Well, first and foremost, Joy, thank you for having me and thank you for lifting this challenge up in my city. Uh, I think what Jackson represents, uh, what Flint represents, uh, are circumstances of divestment, underinvestment, and in, in communities that resemble ours uh, far too frequently. Uh, this has been a challenge that we have been lifting up uh, my entire time in office, uh, but more specifically nationally, at least uh, more than two years, uh, saying that it's not a matter of if these systems will fail, but when these systems will fail. And so what the calculus comes to is that it, it amounts to humiliation for our, our constituents. Uh, it, it amounts to a, a poor quality of life. And, and, and we're unable to reveal the simple dignity of having uh, running water within homes uh, to, you know, for sanitary needs, to bathe uh, or, or to drink. Uh, and, and so uh, we need to make certain that when this falls out of the news cycle, uh, that the work continues and that we see it to its conclusion that we have a water system that is sustainable, dependable, and equitable uh, and serves the best interests of our residents in every way. 
And I mean, just for viewers to just get a handle on this, I mean, we're talking about a city, you know, the capital city of, of Mississippi, of the state of Mississippi, in which people are being told to bathe with their mouths closed so that they don't breathe in whatever is in the water. Do you even have an assessment? Have you been given an assessment of what's in this water? Well, uh, first and foremost, the, the boil water notice, um, we, we have to you know go through a bit of history uh, because we had a boil water notice in effect prior to the flood. Uh, that boil water notice was due to uh, a high turbidity reading, uh, which could be bacterial. It could be a high lime content. Uh, but the issue of that turbidity was resolved in that instance within a 24-hour period of time. Uh, but then it took uh, consecutive days of testing which proved to be challenging, uh, not only because uh, having to have out of 120 samples, uh, clear tests for all of the 120 uh, for two consecutive days, we would have one or two come up bad poor. Uh, and then we contended with the persistent rain even before the flood. Uh, and you can't test in the rain. And we had uh, flash floods that were happening. Uh, and then we had the flood itself. Uh, and then uh, due to the flood, uh, that led to uh, that led to a bad chemistry of water coming into the plant, which meant that they could not push out that water due to their concern over that. And it dropped pressure levels across the city. Uh, and so until the pressure can be restored, then the OK to start testing again can't take place. All of this is uh, part and parcel of a water treatment facility that simply is just not as loyal uh, to our residents as the people who work there. Uh, we have people who work there diligently uh, who are, you know, looking over various components of failure, whether it's the raw water screens, uh, whether it's the, the raw water pumps, uh, whether it's the UV light that is, you know, obsolete, uh, whether it's distribution lines into the water treatment facility, uh, conventional side or membrane side. Uh, all of these things have have had uh, an impact on our water treatment facility uh, at given periods of time. And all of it has mm -hmm. amounted. A, a challenge for our residents. And you, you're, another challenge you have is your, your governor. Uh, Paul Krugman wrote the following about your governor. Back in April, Governor Tate Reeves, a Republican, announced that he was making an investment in Mississippians. By an investment, he meant a tax cut rather than spending on, say, education or infrastructure. There are no easy answers to the problem of left-behind regions. But one thing is for sure, imagining that tax cuts will bring prosperity to a poorly educated state that can't even provide its capital with running water is just delusional. And I wonder if you would comment on Tate Reeves, because under his administration, you've also had all of these vast sums of money going to wealthy athletes, to wealthy people, just giving them money um, to make speeches and, you know, for a volleyball facility. Um, Oh, and, the, and I, I believe it was the previous administration that gave them that money. So that might have been not been Tate Reeves. But what do you make of the statewide government, not just this governor, but the previous one, spending lots of mm -hmm. money on wealthy people and lots of money on tax cuts, but not any money on infrastructure? Well, as your package suggested, this has been a problem in the making for decades, uh, not, not simply years. Uh, these have been problems uh, that when I moved here in 1988 as a little boy, I remember uh, the freeze of 1989 that debilitated our system, uh, and I, there are far too many occurrences to recount of how many of how we've dealt with a challenge with water in Jackson. Uh, and so, you know, I have been, you know, less than than bashful, uh, and and I have been on the record of lifting up and and speaking to the leadership uh, and their their necessity to act. Um, and so, you know, uh, my my record is clear uh, in, in in saying and lifting these things up. 
Uh, but I, I do want people to appreciate the circumstance that I'm in today, right? Today, where my residents don't have water, today, where uh, I've cried out for the state support, and today, when there is a coalition that is on the ground, right? That is where my immediate concern has to be. Uh, now, I do believe that, that, you know, there is a time that we return and talk about why it took us so long to get here, uh, that we return to the question of, of, you know, the fact that Jackson mm-hmm. residents are worthy. They're worthy of this support. And that's what I want to lift up is that my, my residents are worthy to not be, uh, you know, dealing with the challenges that they have become accustomed to. This is their way of life. This is what they know. Um, and, and that is unacceptable on every end. Yeah. Indeed. And I hope that you will come back. Jackson Mayor Chokwe uh, Antar Lumumba, please come back uh, and update us on what's going on in your city. Uh, the beautiful, wonderful, uh, and lovely city. One of my favorite cities, Jackson. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Really appreciate you. And coming up, Trump allies are reportedly backing a massive voter eligibility challenge in Georgia in a blatant bid to disrupt the upcoming election. That story and more after the break. As Republicans bash President Biden over his thoroughly accurate claim that Trumpism is a threat to American democracy, Trump and his minions are doing exactly that, threatening democracy, overwhelming county election boards just weeks until Election Day. Bloomberg reports that the group Voter GA is backing a mass challenge to voter eligibility in Georgia, a state considered to be ground zero in Trump's effort to steal the 2020 election and 2024, too. The group filed eight boxes on Monday containing more than 37,000 challenges to voters in Gwinnett County, a once solidly Republican area of suburban Atlanta that has voted Democratic since 2016. The group is backed by Trump's superfan and overstock founder Patrick Byrne and Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, the guy who took the QAnon pledge, who twice pleaded guilty to the Trump staple of lying to the FBI. The challenge will certainly overwhelm election officials just two months before the pivotal Georgia midterm elections, making it harder, surprise, for some registered voters to cast their ballots. Because, of course, joining me now, attorney Jossie Ross, who's also a member of Blackfeet Nation and Democratic strategist Atima Omara. And Atima, I'm going to start with you first, because this seems like very blatant voter suppression happening in Georgia. Uh, How is that even? Well, I know it's legal. It's because they passed that Jim Crow law. Right. I was going to say that I feel like this is absolutely Jim Crow 2.0. And the reason I say that is because the original Jim Crow laws were designed seemingly on paper to be race blind, but were actually weaponized by bad actors who were trying to intimidate, disenfranchise and demoralize black and brown voters. Well, this law signed by Brian Kemp, who's supposedly a champion because of the democracy, because he stood up against Trump. But he signed this law into effect that allows actors like Michael Flynn and all of his Trump allies to mass challenge voter registration across the state of Georgia. And what that does is drive all these electoral boards to a halt because they're going to do their due diligence and checking voter registrations. But hey, here's the kicker. Brian Kemp also has a state law that empowers him to remove those folks That's from right. running those electoral boards. And what could actually happen when that happens? He puts people in place who are presumably folks who didn't believe the 2020 elections were valid and actually maybe start looking at these voter registrations and tossing them out. And coincidentally, they're all black and brown people and some folks who dare to vote for Democrats. Yeah. 
I mean, it, look, judging people and giving them a blight on having one good day is how people respected Rudy Giuliani for so long. Because on one day, exactly. on September 11th, he did the right thing. I don't mean nothing. Uh, Jossie Ross, you know, it, it is it is it is ironic, my friend, that Republicans are in the South enacting a modern day Jim Crow. I mean, in Florida, they basically reversed a constitutional amendment that allowed people who had served their felony sentences to vote by putting a poll tax in and then arresting them with DeSantis's election. Police. You've got Brian Kemp doing this in Georgia. And then they whine and cry because Republicans who run the state of Alaska had ranked choice, decided to input ranked choice voting and Sarah Payne and Laws. <laughs> and they're like, outrage, voters, you know, voters oppression. Your thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's a means justify the ends situation where Republicans want to have it both uh, both ways. They want to be able to complain about something that they seemingly works against them when in truth, their messaging is just wrong. Their stances are just wrong and they're not resonating with American people. And and on the other side, want to say that uh, this, you know, what, what happens in Alaska, that this shouldn't be a situation that where, where you know, the, it's the top three. And, and first of all, salute to um, the new yes. congresswoman elect as the first Alaska native woman person to, to be in the House of Congress for two months. Ultimately, we're going to revisit the same process, the same disenfranchisement up there in Alaska, primarily of native people again in about two months. But ultimately, I, I just want to speak upon Georgia really quick. Uh, as a criminal defense attorney, whenever you have a, a system, a law that allows individuals, because that's what this law allows is individuals to, um, to bring in and, 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 you know, bring in the, the rule of law and say these people are doing something wrong with absolutely no basis, no foundation for that, that it's peak Karen. It's peak Karen behavior. And ultimately, we know where that Karen behavior is going to go. As as alluded to earlier, it is going to ultimately penalize. It's ultimately going to chill uh, uh, black and brown folks from doing their constitutional duty and right. And, and that's something we should always be wary of and fight against, Joy. Yeah, and I know we're going to do who on the week in a bit, but one of the candidates this week could have really been Mary Peltola because it is really shocking that in the state of Alaska that is, you know, a, a, it's an indigenous-based uh, population. There's never been an indigenous Alaskan uh, person in Congress at all. Let, let's play a little clip of her last night when she was on with uh, Alex Wagner. No other Americans are my enemies. It doesn't matter what party you're from. If you're an American, you are not my enemy. Steering away from the closed primary process, which has really shown us that that has um, created an environment where folks are trying to out-Democrat each other or out-Republican each other to the point that we wind up with very extreme candidates, sometimes fringe candidates. Let's just give uh, Jossie, let's just give this lady her, her flowers. Mary Peltola. What does that mean? Do you think that she uh, even if it's for two months that she won? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, first of all, she she defeated an opponent, Sarah Palin, who had four times the amount of money that she had. So she's doing something right. Moreover, she's a relative unknown compared to her two Republican uh, opponents. So she's doing something very, very right. And, and Joy, I just want to point out that uh, another thing that um, that Congresswoman-elect Peltola does is, and, and I love this, is she shows the diversity 
of indigenous, of, of native thought and belief. Uh, a lot of times on both sides, folks like to categorize just like black folks, you know, just like any other community and say that we're a monolith and we vote this way. Um, Peltola, she, she is a staunch supporter as she should be of reproductive rights, uh, of, of right to abortion, access to abortion. But at the same time, She's also somebody who is a staunch supporter of the Second Amendment. Yeah. So it's just diversity and it's complexity. Yeah, absolutely. So we're giving her flowers. Big up to her. We'd like to have you on the show, uh, Congresswoman Alek. So we want to, we're going to be coming at you. Uh, Giasi and Atima are sticking around because guess what? Everybody's favorite game to end the week. The, the way to end the week is coming up. Who won the week is straight ahead after the break. TGIF, we made it, y'all, which means it's time to kick off the long weekend. It's also time for... Ah, yes, who won the week? Jossie Ross, Atima Omara are back with me. Atima Omara, welcome to the show. Who won the week? Serena Williams, 40-year-old mom who unseated uh, with the number uh, number two ranked player in tennis currently. Uh, She hadn't even been playing a ton of matches before she came into what is going to be her retirement show at the U.S. Open. And quite frankly, her performance on Tuesday, Wednesday night definitely showed that she is absolutely earned the title of the greatest of all time. You're going to realize why I'm smiling about that. You're picking uh, Serena Williams as a who in the week, because that is an excellent pick. Giassi Ross, can you beat that? Who won the week? I cannot beat it, but I can match it. (laughs) Serena Williams, Serena Williams, Serena Williams. Bad, bad woman, Mad fashion point. maven, uh, uh, a mom, amazing, amazing, obviously tennis player. Listen to this, Joy. The most dominant athlete ever, ever in the history of sports. Let's get it correct. Amen. Well, let me tell you something. There's one thing that has never happened. I've been doing Who Won the Week a long time, y'all. Never in the history of Who Won the Week have all three people picked the same person. But tonight... For Serena Williams, it is game, set, match. Because match. my pick as well happens to be Serena MNF and Williams because she is the baddest <laughs> in the game. Game, set, match, Serena Williams. You won the week. Thank you, Jossie Ross. Thank you, Atima Omara. That's never happened before in Who Won the Week. That's actually kind of amazing. She literally won the week. Maybe I should also make a runner-up Dark Brandon, because Dark Brandon is the runner-up for Who Won the Week, because he secondarily won the week. Because Dark Brandon went off this week. That is tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.